Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power. To power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Let us pray. Have mercy upon us, O God, and save us from the madness. That was the same year that he was named chaplain of the United States Senate. So he has been chaplain there for 10 years now. And this past week, on the occasion of this government shutdown, the chaplain has been giving Congress what for about them shutting down the government. He does it in a totally nonpartisan way, and he's always very succinct. But you can kind of see him now escalating his browbeating of them as the days go by. And each new day needs a new prayer to start them off. It's, it started on Friday when the shutdown was still on the other side of the weekend. Let us pray. Holy God, you created us for freedom, so keep us from shackling ourselves with the chains of dysfunction. Lord, deliver us from governing by crisis. Deliver us, Lord, from governing by crisis. That was Friday. 
By Monday, when they were actually closing in on the crisis, the chaplain stepped it up. Let us pray. Eternal God, as our nation stumbles toward a seemingly unavoidable government shutdown, Lord, lead them away from the unfortunate dialectic of us versus them as they strive to unite for the common good of this land we love. So God did not answer. We were not delivered, and the United States government locked out its employees, shut down services to its citizens. Yet the chaplain of the U.S. Senate persisted. Let us pray. Be merciful to us, O God, during this legislative stalemate. Help our lawmakers to test all things by their conscience in these days that try our souls. Strengthen our weakness, replacing cynicism with faith and cowardice with courage. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And he prayed some more. Have mercy upon us, O God, and save us from the madness. We acknowledge our transgressions, our shortcomings, our smugness, our selfishness, and our pride. Deliver us from the hypocrisy of attempting to sound reasonable while being unreasonable. Remove the burdens of those who are the collateral damage of this government shutdown. We pray in your merciful name. Amen. It is ironic that the hero who surfaces at the U.S. House of Representatives is a man of God, someone who they can't talk back to, who they have to listen to. But it is also to be noted that it is in the House of Representatives teaching America that prayer does not work. And save us from the madness. 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 This is our common ground. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And good evening, and thank you for joining us. Save us from the madness is the mantra of America this week as we come into the ending and the beginning of a week in America with the government shutdown, federal employees locked out, and we are at a standstill holding our breath, waiting to exhale to see 
what the capitulation and the compromise might be. Thank you so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground. We are here to speak truth to power and ourselves. And tonight on Our Common Ground, a very special personal story, event, and discussion about what forms black media in the era of Obama all the way back to the days of expressions of black power, Angawa. We're going to be talking about an article written by Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry, who is joining us tonight, The Radicalization of Ray Richardson. Suspicion still surrounds the death of the black activist TV producer and as a witness, as I always am, speaking truth to power, I will tell you it was the death of a real empowerment media for black people in this country. And we hope that you will join um, us in uh, this discussion tonight. You can find the article at Black Agenda Report. It was published on Tuesday, October 8th. Uh, and we thank our friends Glenn Ford uh, and all of the people over there who are our Common Ground Voices at Black Agenda Report for publishing this very important report. Before we begin, I need to bring you some of the slices of what this article provides. In January 1971, the young producer of Boston Public Television's groundbreaking program, Say Brother, was found dead in a Mexican resort along with his fiancée. Ray Richardson was the grandson of Harlem radical Hubert Harrison. The cause of his death was listed as drowning. But as in this year's death of Malcolm Shabazz, grandson of Malcolm X, in Mexico as well, questions linger and rise back to the top. Jeffrey Perry points out in his article that members of Ray Richardson's family believed that he was monitored and targeted and that the U.S. government was involved in his death. He was the grandson of one of the most outstanding black activists of the 20th century, found dead like Malcolm Shabazz under suspicious circumstances. And as important was the work that he did. Perry writes in this article, As the civil rights and black power movements grew in strength and militancy in the 1960s, and as U.S. cities faced urban riots, rebellions, increased attention was paid by many, including leadership, at WGBH, the PBS station in Boston, to the fact that television stations had almost no black staff members. After the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on April 4th, 
1968 conditions were extremely tense in Boston. There was a James Brown concert scheduled for April 5th, and it was expected to draw 15,000 people downtown to the infamous, now-gone, Boston Garden. City officials negotiated with WGBH to broadcast the concert. As a young student in Boston, I sat in the meeting with the officials of WGBH, City Councilor Tom Atkins, who was my boss, and Mayor Kevin White, arranging that the concert would be broadcast over the air at WGBH and people would be encouraged to watch it from home for free rather than going to the Boston Garden where there was expected to be, because of the crowd, response to the assassination of uh, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King. Perry, in this article, relies heavily upon the input of Charles Richardson, the brother of Ray Richardson at WGBH, and Devorah Heitner, author of a new and important book, Black Power TV. And if you do not have it in your library, you should. It was featured at the Schomburg Borg, uh, Center in December 2013. This article is worth reading. Key members of the extremely talented staff in that year were Ray Richardson, producer and director, and Stan Latham, a 1967 graduate of Pennsylvania State University, got together and began to construct what we understood as radical black media. Joining them were Tony Lark, Richie Lee, Jewel Gomez, Ellen Cabot, Deidre Francis, uh, Jim Spruill, Sarah Ann Shaw, a very prominent news reporter out of Boston, Henry Hampton of Blackside Productions, which was which later created the documentary television series Eye on the Prize. They were all regulars and insightful commentators. I was a young intern and gopher for the staff of Say Brother and was so very proud to be associated and to have my thinking and perspectives about race in America to be formed by these people. We're going to be talking with Jeffrey Perry about this event, a very important event. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Jeffrey Perry. Tonight at Our Common Ground, our guest, Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry, who is the author of an article which appeared in the Black Agenda Report this week, The Radicalization of Ray Richardson, Suspicion Still Surrounds Death of Black Activist TV Producer. We're pleased to have Dr. Perry with us tonight He's an independent, and he calls himself a working-class scholar, whose work focuses on the role of white supremacy 
as a retardant to progressive social change and on centrality of struggle against white supremacy to progressive social change efforts. He's the editor and author of Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883 to 1918. It is interesting that the subject of our discussion tonight, Ray Richardson, is the grandson of Hubert Harrison, the great activist, radical, and black people's advocate of Harlem. And we're going to ask Dr. Perry if that is what drew his attention and interest on this topic. Ray Richardson and his groundbreaking Say Brother at WGBH, who changed television and media in America. He was Ray Richardson, the founder and producer of Say Brother at WGBH-TV PBS in Boston. It was a pioneering show from the beginning, hard-hitting and hard-edged. Ray Richardson was murdered in Mexico under very suspicious circumstances. It is clear, unclear what happened, not clear about what didn't happen. I knew Ray Richardson. He was a friend, a mentor, and a teacher. Say Brother no longer broadcasts from WGBH. It was replaced by a program That is quite different. As with most media that followed in the pioneering footsteps of Ray Richardson and Say Brother, it has been chlorinated. Tonight at Our Common Ground with Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry, we're going to be talking about the killing of radical black media and the radicalization and death of Ray Richardson. I'm Janice Graham. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. Henry Hampton, founder of Blackside Productions, producer of Eyes on the Prize. At Our Common Ground. For all practical purposes, black television began last spring following the death of Martin Luther King. After the riots, commercial and educational broadcasters stunned and frightened at the explosiveness of what had occurred in the cities, finally began to live up to their tarnished reputation as instruments of the public interest. For the first time, television stations not only paid lip service to the participation of blacks and Puerto Ricans, but actually offered significant blocks of airtime to black producers and writers. A year later, many of the shows are off the air. Some lacked the necessary skills and adequate resources to accomplish ambitious goals. Some were simply axed because we didn't riot last summer and things had returned to normal. Perhaps a few failed because they were simply too honest with those who sponsored them. But a few shows survived and, like Say Brother, have gone far past their original boundaries. Many of them have done it before me, but they were not famous cases. Heavyweight champion and activist advocate Muhammad Ali interview in 1969, pioneering public affairs program, Say Brother. Black people really don't have nothing to fight for. 
We go to Vietnam, we come back. I saw a brother coming through the airport with no arms and one leg cut off. Couldn't find nobody to push him to a taxi cab. And, uh, and, um, come back home and we fight for our own freedom. We get our heads beat up. And I just don't think I should go 10,000 miles from here and shoot some black people that never called me nigger, never lynched me, never put dogs on me, never raped my mama, enslaved me, and and deprived me of freedom, justice, equality, and he's black too. I just can't shoot him. And then I come back home and I read while I'm in the foxhole in Vietnam, I read about white folks shooting up Negroes and killing them with the same weapons that they use in a war on the streets of the America. And with this in mind, and plus my religious beliefs too, which is the legal reason I'm not going, I just can't go over there and shoot them. Longtime activist, advocate, and candidate for mayor of the city of Boston, Mel King, who now teaches in urban studies at MIT. An interview expresses his concern about the termination and the future of Say Brother at WGBH and talks about the role of media in the black community. At WGBH, and I think people in the media were really afraid of a man like Ray Richards. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons being that he was doing what media was supposed to be about, and that was getting out there with the people and giving them access. And one of the programs that uh, caused him to be fired, mm -hmm. around which uh, we mobilize in the community, which has really been the precipitating force in the uh, control of the Save Brother program mm -hmm. uh, within the community itself, mm -hmm was his going down to New Bedford mm -hmm. and really allowing folks to express how they felt. I mean, raw, naked. I mean, that's what it's all about, and that's what the media uh, should be about. Not controlled, not mm -hmm. contrived, but telling the slice of life as it is. Uh, Ray was very... Mm -hmm. Talk about 
Uh, this story has me almost tongue-tied. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so very much for, for joining us. Uh, before we begin, I do want to thank our friends over at the Black Agenda Report uh, for publishing this piece that you wrote with your co-author, Charles Richardson, who is the brother of Ray Richardson, and uh, for taking the time to do such intensive and detailed research uh, on this story. Let me ask you as we begin, what, what inspired you to go back and look at this particular piece of history? Hi, Dennis. Uh, and just before I answer that question, I just want to thank you for sharing some time on this. And I also want to thank Glenn and Bruce. And Charles not only co-wrote, but he brought many of the very important insights to the article, Charles Richardson. Um, uh, what, what led me to start writing about this, I've been writing about Hubert Harrison for over 30 years. The volume that came out was the first volume of a two-volume biography. And Hubert Harrison is a giant in black history. This is Ray's grandfather. He used a major radical influence on both A. Philip Randolph and Marcus Garvey. That's the class radicals and the race radicals in terms of black struggle. He's a he's an extraordinarily important figure. And um, besides writing the, the very lengthy two-volume biography, we're good, I'm going to be putting all 700 of his writings up on the web for free worldwide um, I'm in, in process with Columbia University and we're trying to get some of his books through uh, diasporic Africa press onto the continent and into the continent and so we've got major projects uh, and what happened was in May when Malcolm Shabazz was found um, dead under very suspicious circumstances in Mexico and there were some very good pieces Patrick uh, Delices, Milton Alamadi and Herb Boyd wrote some pieces that really called my attention to the article and it jogged my memory because I was familiar from the Harrison family of uh, Ray Richardson's death and questions they had but I I didn't know even when I started how deeply felt this was in the family until I really had much more discussion with Charles about it. I had heard from Ray Richardson's mom and Charles's mom, Ada Harrison Richardson. Um, so I started to look into the circumstances around the death, and then I, I, I got a fast education because I'm from New York area. You're so familiar with all this up in Boston, but I, I learned uh, some of the history of, um, uh, say, brother and the struggles they were waging. The Deborah Heitner book, which you mentioned, is very helpful, very good. I recommend it to people and to libraries. And, um, you know, I started putting this together. But then something that really struck me, besides the fact that we have these grandsons of these two outstanding, really major black radical figures, one in the first half of the 20th century, one in the second half, and both their grandsons die mysteriously, uh, you know, under suspicious circumstances in Mexico, as I'm reading the Ray Richardson biography in the Boston Globe, right underneath it, and this period when, when Ray is killed, this is the period when Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and George Jackson are being killed, when the CIA is going abroad and they're engineering a coup against Allende in Chile, and they they, uh, they kidnap and wind up assassinating one of the generals in Chile who refused to uh, reject the election results when Allende wins. So this period 
um, there's a lot of things going on that should raise concern. And as I'm looking in the Boston Globe at the obituary of Ray Richardson and his fiance Vashti Lowndes, who's also an extraordinarily important person, and um, you know, you know, perhaps we can talk about her a little bit later. Uh, but right underneath that obituary is the obituary of Jacobo Arbenz. Now, if listeners are not familiar with Arbenz, he was a left-leaning progressive president elected in Guatemala, who was ousted in 1954 in a, an openly um, uh, taking credit for by the CIA, uh, CIA coup, right? The CIA engineered the coup to remove him in 1954. And in 1971, almost to the day that Ray Richardson drowns in Mexico, right underneath his obituary, it, I see that our Benz is found drowned in Mexico. And I'm looking, I'm saying, what? And then I read further, and our Benz drowns, according to the report, in his own bathtub. And I said, wow. So I, I said, I want to start, you know, I had to put aside some projects I was working on, um, the, the Harrison projects. I said, let me dig a little deeper. And then as I dug more deeply into the story, I started really corresponding back and forth with Charles Richardson, Ray's brother, who I've been in close touch with for many years, but we're, uh, you know, West Coast, East Coast. And he started revealing things that I didn't know uh, and from the family, uh, and it, it really added to the story. So that's a little background on how I came to it. I'm sorry for if I went on a little long there. No, no. It gives us a good frame uh, to to talk about Ray Richardson, and I knew Ray Richardson personally. Um, it was um, Ray Richardson that and his and his say brother that was a response to the question that white America had: What are we going to do with these Negroes now? after the assassination of uh Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh in 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 68 when Say Brother began, it 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 I want people to understand that it set a standard of excellence for black television shows. Uh with issues that it brought to the public, the artists that it featured and the education that it uh, provided not only for the black community but for the white community. This was the this was the era of black power, black pride, um, and 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 more important, the thrust for political power. Uh, when uh, in, in an era, I mean, I was a student, and I was open to everything that had to do with creating an environment for black. Uh, empowerment, which is how I ended up interning at Say Brother, uh, because I wanted to go where it was happening, you know. But but people, I, I want to frame it in, the, in this era, you know, it was the Afro hairstyle and the modes of dress that was proclaiming all over the place, "Black is beautiful." Even the, even the title of the show sent the message. Say brother was a commonplace greeting in those days where brothers and sisters, when you saw them on the street, you would say, say brother. Uh, it was a signal, a sign, and this show uh, captured that in a tremendous, tremendous way. 
Um, but I also want to talk a little about uh, who Ray Richardson was. This was a young man who just stretched out to people. He understood that what he was doing at WGBH and PBS was a model for what could happen as part of the black power movement, that it injected a whole realm of power into that movement. And he really understood that. And, And if you were around him, he was just, I mean, he had the biggest smile ever there was. And in, in, in later days, all of us who knew him, who understood the import of what he did in TV, um, would remember that smile. And it, inter- it, was, it was almost like an interruption of the momentum in the black power movement in media when it was announced that he had drowned. Now, when you connect his death to the death of, or you parallel it to the death of Malcolm Shabazz, when you put Ray Richardson, the man, in the context of being the grandson, that was like being the the that was like being in the grandson of Hubert Harrison was very much, but even and and I don't want to say better, but more profound than being the son or daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King, because his children were so young, um, there had to be a formation in in terms of, and you could see it, his formation, he understood his blackness. He understood the issues before him and had an awareness as as a child. He grew up having an awareness of his blackness. Yes, and, I think that's oh, – I'm sorry. And that formed how he thought about the work that, that he was doing. And I think that when you – you know, it's very interesting that you have titled this the radicalization of Ray Richardson as opposed to the story of Ray Richardson. And here was a man who was primed as a growing up to be able to be open to his responsibility, his obligation, and to a whole movement because he was who he was and the way in which he was formed. I just I have to believe that 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 is where it came from. Now, people around him, uh, probably because you hadn't written your book yet, uh, probably unless you lived in Harlem, did not understand the import of the work that Hubert 
uh, Harrison had done. It wasn't in any textbooks that anybody ever gave me. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that becomes, who he was becomes very important in all of this. And um, I'm, I'm not sure... Uh, because I mean, he was a riot in and of himself. They did not know what to do with him in the city of Boston. They couldn't contain him. They couldn't control him. Uh, and and it wasn't it, you know it wasn't that he was a, a a very he was forceful in his personality, but forceful in a very very bright uh, and shining way. But. PBS and WGBH really did not know what they had unleashed, and when they had unleashed it, they didn't know what to do about the problems because Say Brother was at the center of all the political and social uh, progressive discussion strategies going on in the city of Boston for the entire time that Ray Richardson was there. And that is, I wanted to make all of those points so that people really understand how relevant uh, all of this is to today's black media. Um, Let me ask you about whether or not in your research and your discussion with Charles Richardson and the 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 Richardson family, whether or not there was any kind of investigation. Um, fine. I, I'm going to answer that question. I just want to uh, add a few little points to what you said. Um, one thing, when you were describing and giving a, an image of the era and period, on uh, our Common Ground website, on your website right now, um, is a wonderful photo of the staff of uh, Say Brother, and I think for those who are near their computers, they might want to take a look at that, and you'll see, you'll get a little sense, because it was a real young collective effort, very inspiring, I think. Um, And uh, just a couple more things. I think when you're describing Ray's personality, all open, I mean, I I get that from so many accounts, uh, exactly the way you describe it. You've, You've given wonderful descriptions of all of this. And I think in part that comes from his parents. His mom uh, was a uh, school teacher and at the end uh, a principal in New York, quite an accomplishment for a black woman in the 60s, right? And I, I, I knew her, and she, you know, she really emphasized, you know, the education and, 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 and taking, you know, really working at what you do and doing the best you can. And you see that in both Ray and his brother Charles. And his father, Virgil, was a Tuskegee Airman, so he, you know, he had these influences on his life, even though his grandfather had died. Um, his mom was only 15 when uh, her father, Hubert Harrison, died. Um, and she was so, ta- I mean, she was extraordinarily talented because she was a weekly columnist in the Amsterdam News, New York's Black Weekly, while she's still in high school. So this is some of, you know, what's going into his upbringing. Um, and um, regarding the question of an investigation, what. Um, Charles Richardson told me, and he may he may call in later tonight. He's, as I said, he's on the West Coast. Um, he was going to try to if he could. Um, but 
the family was utterly suspicious in and around the period in the article, which again, and I encourage people to look at the article because there's lots of links in the article, so you get a real feel for the period. Those some of those clips that you you uh, played before are there, um, and uh, when when we look back, you know, at the period and the investigation. Um, the the family didn't know that there was very much that they could do at all, and and Charles explains that you know because uh, this had been happening. This had happened. Hubert Harrison, their grandfather, had been one of the very first black radical activists monitored by the Bureau of Investigation, which was the precursor to the FBI and by British military intelligence. Right. So they had a, a tradition of this or a history of it in their family, and Ray explained that both he and his mom very much felt that their phones were being tapped and listened into. Ray had said that was happening to him before he left for Mexico to, to, for his, to see his father, uh, which is, you know, on that stay, that what was a two-month stay as he was getting ready to leave is when he, uh, was the incident when he, uh, he and Vashti, uh, Vashti uh, die, but what was interesting also is, and this again is in the article. Everything we know at this point, Vashti and Ray meet a young couple from Buffalo, New York, who say they're working as investigators for the U.S. government. A young African American couple, so their their guard is a little bit down, and they go to the beach with these people. And it, 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 Ray's father comments in his biography, another fine uh, book by a uh, historian named Ben Vincent, is a biography Virgil Richardson, uh, Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and he, he says, oh, that sounded like a whole pile of crap to me, you know, what these people were telling them. But they went off to the beach with these people, and that's when the incident happens. All the days and what bodies were found, none of the stories seem to, to jive totally. But um, when when it happened, uh, they they Ray expressed the uh, feeling that they didn't think there was very much they can do. Now, I, I mention that because Vashti Lowndes, his fiance who died, her body, her family was told that the body was never found, so they they were told there was nothing they could do. And another one of the um, the incidents that I cite in the article um, is the death of Whitney Young. I don't know if people remember, Whitney Young dies in Nigeria in this period, shortly thereafter, as I recall. And... Um, in swimming also, according to the U.S. coroner, the uh, uh, Nigerian coroner says, no, he died of a hemorrhage, right? That's, I think, the first report. But then the U.S. person goes, oh, drowning, drowning. And um, in the article that I, I linked to um, uh, in the article in Black Agenda Report, uh, Whitney Young's family kind of says the same thing. We didn't think there was much we could do. You know, this happens ha- half a world away, and uh, you know they're just they're left with this. And I think this story, unfortunately, has been the story too often in U.S. history and Black history. You know, uh, you know, it's you know, really interesting happen. that here we are. These Black families are saying there's a feeling that there's nothing that you can do. Uh, that they could have done to investigate, and and black people really felt uh, disenfranchised in a way that they would get no response. I mean, Whitney Young, for instance, it was very suspicious about his death, uh, as you pointed out, because there were two kinds of reports about his death, Um, and he was an American civil rights leader and had spent time as 
uh, the national, the, the executive director of the National Urban League, right. uh, and 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 the American government um, really did nothing. Uh, and he had just come out against the war, as had King before his death, and I think that all goes into the story too. Exactly. I mean, and what what my father always said um, that was interesting is that immediately President Richard Nixon sent a plane to Nigeria to collect Young's wow. body and mm-hmm. traveled to Kentucky to deliver the eulogy at Young's funeral. Mm. You know, and one of the things uh, that Nixon stated in the eulogy of uh, Whitney Young was that he knew how to accomplish what other people were merely for, which I find intriguing. But you're absolutely right. And and then uh, if we turn to the uh, death of Malcolm uh, Shabazz, Mm-hmm. the grandson of Malcolm X, and we take a look at the kind of or the lack of investigation, and it, I mean, it, when, when, he, when, when it was reported that he had been killed, uh, it was interesting that, to me, that Malcolm Shabazz, as an adult, had never been in any real trouble or being being seen as getting involved in a barroom fight. And he goes to Mexico mm-hmm. and he gets involved in a barroom fight. Right. I mean, that was one of the things that, that came up for me. But uh, all of this uh, points to that black people are not valued by our government or in the society, no matter what they do. Look at the time that it took to investigate the murder, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, 25 years. Mm. Look at uh, what we still don't know about the assassination of Malcolm X. Um, So it really imbues a a sense of um, that we don't have the kind of political uh, empowerment uh, to be able to call to accounting. Now, let's get back to Ray. I'd just like to say one one thing on that, Janice, if I may. Uh Yeah, I I, I understand, and I I, I agree. I mean, I understand how the Harrison family felt, and I understand what you're describing. But one important reason, in in writing the article – Right. Um, I, I, I I thought that there were certain things. First, Ray Richardson and his contemporaries. It's a wonderful story. It's an inspiring story, what the young people were doing and how they were struggling. And it's really, James Spruill says, you know, it's a model in some ways, right? Um, and so there's much to learn from uh, what, what was done. But uh, another reason... Uh, you know, I I wrote is I I wrote both for people of our generation, if you will, right, who lived through some of these years, but also particularly for the younger people, because I think nowadays that we can much more aggressively pursue these things, and even though it's forty years, you know, we can pursue and and dig deeper into these Freedom of Information Act requests and this and that to to research and not leave on un, leave go unchallenged some of these. You know, part 
partial stories that we've been told. And and mm-hmm. I you know I'm really hoping that young people will pick up this this part of this was to just get out the story. So as at Kamosi Woodard, um, who teaches at Sarah Lawrence College and is running the whole series at the Schomburg that Devorah Heitner will be participating in, and I spoke a few weeks ago on Hubert Harrison at, and he calls Hubert Harrison the lost ancestor of black radicalism. How you know he he people didn't know much about him, unfortunately, because he had so much to offer. And we don't want that to happen to Ray and the say brother staff and crew and what they did. We want to keep the, these examples and memories and struggles alive today. Absolutely. I'm sorry to, to, to interrupt with you that. You know, I, um, I think that what, what I want and my mission tonight, part of my mission tonight is to help our audience, my audience, to understand that we have retrogressed to the point that we are simply getting fluff in the media on the right. black experience. In, in 1960, you write in the article in 1969, um, Deckel McLean in the Boston Globe pointed out that Say Brother was the first primetime show aimed at a black community. And um, he explained on the networks there is about one hour of black programming to every 1,140 hours of white on the local stations nationally. Right. Uh, about one hour black to every 10,000 hours white. And I think mm-hmm. that we are, that that is probably very true today. Mm-hmm. But what Deborah Heitner writes in, in, in sums it up, as you point out in the article, that the staff felt that they did not need to yield their hour to oppositional points of view as the entire program consisted of an oppositional point of view to the rest of what aired on WGBH and other stations. That is just such a key point. And and, and I want to quote your article where you quote Ray Richardson in saying that white people have got to realize, this is what he said about, Mm -hmm. say, brother, white people have got to realize that it is not a black face that makes it black. And you write that this understanding leads to the real stuff. We're down where white people can't quite understand what's going on. We're down in blackness. And from blackness, we know what a racist image is. It occurs every time a white media man pays allegiance to the myth system that has fueled the white racial ego trip every time he indicates he is not ready to start over again. And those are the words of Ray Richardson, and I think they so aptly apply today, which leads me, Jeff, to conclude that at the time, and, we, and, and I want to move on to the, ty- the to, to the termination of uh, Ray Richardson, um, mm-hmm. because when I arrived at the station, uh, a, a, uh, I guess a day, the day before he, or uh, two days before he arrived, uh, before he was terminated, the wow. tension was so bad over this new Bedford uh, report that was being put together that you could literally see uh, a stone etched in people who laughed and 
fooled around and had a good time at, at work on in the offices of uh, Say Brother. But there's another thing that happened as well. Uh, and in your article, you, you uh, Charles Richardson adds that he understood from Ray that many participants considered other programming that were that was being offered on TV in opposition to say brother um, uh, that they were also that the community was also suspect and 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 this is in regard to um what happened in black media in nineteen seven in the early nineteen seventies uh you write that while serving as the producer of say brother Ray Richardson was elected vice chairman, and 37-year-old Tony Brown of Detroit was elected chairman of a new organization, the National Association of Black Media Producers. And that the, there was a conference, and it was co-sponsored by the Johnson Foundation and the mm-hmm. Kettering Foundation. And according to Charles Richardson, when Ray participated in the meeting in which he was chosen as vice chair, he got the impression that the group was being created so as to keep an eye on black folks. Now, Mm -hmm. um, during that time, um, uh, we all understood that there was some suspect around the interjection of Tony Brown as a media leader, black media leader. And there were many questions, as you point out in this article, about whether or not he had any relevant experience uh, and whether or not he was being set up as the big black arbiter of black thought, news, and information. Now tell us the rest of what happened around as you as you describe it in the article to Tony Brown. I mean, we know the rest of the story, but there's a story underneath it. Well, Tony Brown, I mean a few things and I get this from Charles. Tony Brown later on people probably know becomes a very outspoken Republican uh, conservative, right? Um and he's funded by Pepsi-Cola. But Charles talks, and he, he indicated that from his conversations with Ray, they thought from way back when Say Brother was on the air, that in the very basement of the White House, there was there was an office that was used to really keep an eye and monitor particular public TV, but particularly the black shows. Uh, and and this is particularly under the, the Nixon administration. And uh, so is that what you're referring to that you wanted me to discuss? Yes. Or, yeah, and now one other thing. So what happens is now say, brother, one of the things, and we're going to get into this, I think, very shortly, but one of the things, and in the article I try and describe, I actually don't try and describe, I let Ray and his contemporaries describe what they were trying to do. And, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a learning process. These are young people, 19, 20, 21. Yeah. Ray's only 22 years old when he becomes I was 17. producer. I 
of a prime time, prime time, 8 p.m. show Thursday nights in Boston, hour long. This is extraordinary yeah. what they're doing. And and so it's a learning process, too. And for all of them, it's a radicalization. But they're, they're working, for the most part, very uh, ex- uh, exemplary in how they work together. You you said there's other sides of it too, but at, at least the impression and what the what what they've what they've said in in the, the uh, articles I've read, you know, they all comment on the collective spirit and and how Ray, although he was the producer, really worked well with other people, right? So yeah. they were really building something. And one other thing, this is just uh, a tie to his grandfather, if you will. Um, Hubert Harrison, in his day, uh, was a master of the principal means of mass communication. He was uh, the leading, in many ways, the leading radical journalist of his editor. He editor of his era. He edits the first newspapers of the New Negro Movement in 1917. The Voice. This is eight years before Alain Locke's, and the New Negro in 1919. He becomes principal editor of Garvey's Negro World, and he. Um, he's also the pioneering soapbox orator. That's the other way you reach the masses, and we see that later in Randolph and Garvey and Malcolm later on, right? Speaking on the street corners and reaching out now. By the time Ray comes of age, I mean, film and TV, this is the new media, right? So Ray's very good at that. But what he does when they go to, to the rebellion in New Bedford, right, that summer of 1970, and they go for six days and they give voice to the community. It is this notion of, Harrison called his paper The Voice, right, and Ray and the Say Brothers staff are giving voice to the black community. They're really taking it in there and letting the people be heard and and working with that, you know, developing it, and and I think it's just, I I think that's part of what was so very radical about what they were doing. I'm sorry if I went off (laughs) there. Well, no, you're you're absolutely right, and and I do want to talk about the New Bedford uh, Rebellion. Right. And oh, one other thing, meant. if I may, just in terms of the the um, Tony Brown, so how they come in and they they try and and instead of say voice uh, say brother and this radical approach to TV, they want to move in the direction of much more conservative black programming. What's very interesting is a few years later. Um, a program starts uh, not on uh, public broadcasting, but on commercial broadcasting called America's Black, um, Black Forum. America's Black, Forum. America's Black and Forum. With Peter Gamble and Glenn Ford, right? And um, and they talk about how in the beginning, the first few years, they were able to really accomplish what they were trying to do and bring speakers on and really question them and, and you know, really probe and, and do good journalism. And after they leave the leadership of it, how it's quickly taken in a very conservative direction. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in your article you do talk about um, how – after the people, the pioneering people left these shows, right. it, it became infested with hard right news and professional, as as Glenn Ford probably said it, professional black propagandists. And we see that in today's media. We see that. I had a guest a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Dr. Tommy Curry, who talks about... Um, the whole notion of how the whole issue of discussing race and dialogue, race in public places, has become so infested by 
uh, profit motives. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, and and the other idea is that the shows That's, that yeah. that emulated Say Brother uh, became pools of 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 black people attempting to uh become wealthy become celebrities mm-hmm. become uh uh progress i mean tony brown left tony brown's journal um um to and was appointed the founding dean of Howard University <laughs> School of Communications as you right. underscore in the article Right. Um, so, and we see that today. We see that, Jeff, today. We see radio shows that are, are not interested, whose mission is not to inform and to educate and to heighten awareness um, so that people can understand their role as strugglists or for black liberation but for people who want to be celebrities to go on to other things, you know, and I look at some mm-hmm. of the staff, the original staff of Say Brothers, Sarah, Sarah Ann uh, Shaw, uh, Beth Deer, right. people who went on with the mission in mind. But let's talk, uh, it, it's, it's top of the hour, I want to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the new Bedford Rebellion, sure. which was the breaking the final straw at public radio, PBS, public broadcasting, um, um, WGBH, the public television. Right. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Ray, for Ray Richardson. And it really was, his termination really was about uh, exposing the reality mm-hmm. of police harassment, housing discrimination and housing issues, and community sentiment in a community that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the uh, power structure within w- within the within the political structure did not want to be raised. Because Ray Richardson took his TV crew and his cameras to share their perspective, and the show was just packed with forceful critiques of racial conditions in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and they had just had it with a man named Ray Richardson. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey P. Perry. He is the author the co-author, along with Charles Richardson, of an article that appeared in the in the Black Agenda Report, the radicalization of Ray Richardson. Suspicion still surrounds death of black activist TV producer. Thank you for being with us, and we're going to take a break. And we, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking more with Jeffrey Perry. Leaves you all alone 
with a particular set of cultural mores. And people don't really grasp by moralizing uh, things like being lost. In other words, you're either lost or saved. If you're not saved, whatever else you are is lost. And being saved usually means uh, what the people, what they don't do anymore. A whole list of don'ts. I don't do, they never tell you what they do. It's just what they don't do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that. God's going to make me rich for it. Uh, it's what it has become. And that's being saved. So if you're not in line with all these don't do's, then you're, then you're lost. And that's very cheap. Loss refers to a, a much more profound and thoroughgoing state of being. It really has to do with the soul. And the soul is not, here again, another misconception. The soul is not some uh, disconnected... Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew B. Johnson. Wednesdays, 10 p.m., TruthWorks Network. Where spirit matters. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Join India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Fridays and Saturdays, 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw and right now, it's Friday and Saturday. India Declare at the I Declare brunch. Real, raw, and right now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning. 11 a.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. On Blog Talk Radio. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Needs to be dealt with right now. At this very moment, you are standing in the eye of the hurricane and you're going to sit here and pretend. You think that White House is going to protect you? You're not the fixer here. You're the problem. You're a client. You're my client. Tuned into our common ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And we thank you for being here at our common ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Tonight, our guest, Jeffrey B. Perry. He is the author of an article that we're discussing, The Radicalization of Ray Richardson's Suspicion Still Surrounds 
death of black activist TV producer. And we advise you, you must, if you are interested in what is happening in media in America, you must read this article. It's at the Black Agenda Report. We also suggest that if you do not know, and many of you do not know and don't try to act like you do know, uh, you should read and join the body of knowledge about Hubert Harrison, the voice of Harlem radicalism, 1883 to 1918, and you should understand the work that he did. Jeffrey Perry is also the author of The Invention of the White Race, Racial Oppression and Social Control, with um, Theodore W. Allen. And you can learn more about him at jeffreybperry.net. It's jeffreybperry.net, and I am going to post it in our chat room and thank all of you for joining us in our chat room. And if you're listening and you'd like to join our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. This is our common ground. Jeffrey, thank you again for being with us. I do have some notes that I do want to make to you. Listen up, folks. Um, We want to um, note the death of Walter P. Lomax. He's a powerful, powerful owner of... 900 AM WURD in Philadelphia, and he died this week. Uh, WURD is a powerful voice in leadership of the conscious black radio, and we do want to note um, that he passed this week. And also, uh, for those of you who understood our campaign to free and our involvement in the free uh, the Scott sisters campaign that the wonderful mother of those sisters passed week before last and I did not mention it last week and I should have and I apologize Evelyn Rasco uh, made her transition she was the mother who loved enough to call on a nation to do right by her daughters. And if it were not for her gallant campaign to free her children, Gladys and Jamie Scott, they would still be in a prison in Alabama. So we note her transition and that of Walter P. Lomax. You know, it takes a lot. Um, and Mr. Lomax was a very, very courageous man. Uh, a radio station is not, uh, uh, you you don't get rich. And the risks uh, in owning a radio station are very great. And we 
are thankful for not only that he had the courage to purchase WURD, that was a failing radio station about to go black in Philadelphia, but that his investment in the black community with the radio station uh, should be noted. Uh, so we want to make those um, take a, um, a moment to note and highlight the transition of those two people. Also, understand that next week we'll be meeting with Wendell Potter here at Our Common Ground. He'll be returning to talk to us about the Affordable Health Care Act that is under attack, what needs to be adjusted, and how we can help in ensuring that it doesn't get the kind of erosion that the Congress would like to see in these budget cuts that could happen. Thank you again for being with us, and we want to note that uh, thank uh, all of you who are in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com OCG. Jeffrey, when we went on break, one of the things that we hadn't gotten to, and this I, I cannot impress upon how thankful we all ought to be for the work that you did in this article, uh, because it really underscores and gives us a reality check about the potential for black media and the retrogression of black media. I mean, all of us see, we see a lot of black faces here, a lot of black voices, and as James Brown said, saying, talking loud and saying nothing. <laughs> that's just that's my commentary for tonight. Um and and I do want to underscore and make make it real what a show like Say Brother, what an opportunity and an honor it was for me personally. Uh I had no ambition to do radio or T V uh as a student in Boston. But these people raised my awareness, opened my consciousness, and gave me and added to, contributed to, my spirit uh, to struggle for black people and to understand uh, white supremacy and the infrastructure of white supremacy under which I lived and to make a commitment to the things that I could do in my life uh, to uh, alleviate in the places and spaces where I go the stress of oppression against black people in this country. Mm -hmm. And I will always be grateful to people like Sarah Ann Shaw and, and Elma Lewis, who I always do a tribute to, um, uh, to people like Tom Atkins, who was my mentor for many years, uh, who, I mean, these were people who were like your grandmothers and your aunts. And, 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 and one of the things you and I have talked about is that there were so few black students in colleges, in, in, the, in the 63 colleges and universities uh, in the Boston area, that we were like an institution unto ourselves. If anything happened at BU, we were there. Mel King, 
Um, people in the community reached out to us. People like Ray Richardson and Jim Spruill. Um, when when Jim Spruill was teaching at Emerson College and Boston University, we could go and sit in on, on their classes at any time. Uh, and that is how we learn to be part of a black collective. Um, and and admit it and it and 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 they they didn't just reach students in Boston; they reached students in in Prince uh, in at Princeton, uh, um, Columbia. I mean, we were students all over the place. It was like uh, we were like a little posse. Uh, if if the Black Student Association was having something at Columbia, we just got on the train, or that was during the time where uh, you could hitchhike. You could hitchhike down to, to Yale. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, I actually was a hitchhiker. I hitchhiked all the way to Princeton once. Uh, uh, I, I went to uh, Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's, in my let's talk about in the time that we have available the rebellion. Okay. Uh, when the New Bedford Rebellion uh, erupted in Massachusetts, Ray Richardson sent his crew from Say Brother down to New Bedford, which is about maybe a 45-minute drive, uh, into this small community, by the way, where Frederick Douglass lived, uh, to examine what was happening. The, the eruption began, as you write in your article on July 8th, after the arrest of an African-American man for disorderly conduct. In uh, you, <laughs> Yeah, right. Conditions... Yeah. Um, there was a bottle-throwing incident with the police. The shooting and killing of Lester Lima, an African-American youth by white vigilantes. The shooting of two other teenagers and a police raid on a youth center. So there goes the Say Brother staff spending six mm -hmm. days interviewing the community, bearing nude the issue of race racial harassment and police brutality in 1970 and one of the discussions had to do with uh, at say at WGBH had to do with the language that the interviewees were using the profanity and WGBH management warned Ray about the content of the show and told him to remove the sections where the profanity was being used. And, and you remind us in the article that at the time FCC rules prohibited profanity. But the Say Brothers staff disagreed with the management's position, and they went ahead and aired the raw footage. And Ray Richardson hosted the 90-minute New Bedford show. It focused on the African-American community providing a history of New Bedford. Mm -hmm. 
and the statements and opinions of the community residents. Mm -hmm. And for that, um, I think it was like, it was like a week, a week and a half. I, I don't know if they were upstairs talking about it or what. Right. But Ray Richardson was fired on a Monday. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Get, right, right yeah. and get all his belongings. And Say Brother was scheduled to be canceled effective August 27th. But the community erupted about the rumors of the cancellation. And also there was something else going on in the city of Boston, and you noted, and I'm so glad that you picked it up, it was there were reports of corruption in the administration of Boston's mayor, Kevin White. And there were mayoral aides and administrative officials who were indicted and convicted, and it would be, and there was a 10-month investigation um, that concluded that the mayor had violated conflict of interest laws. And that was being reported at Say Brother. <clears throat> Excuse me. So here we are. Um, Boston has one of the most, uh, the oldest black newspapers, the Bay State Banner. Mm -hmm. Kay Bourne, who was a reporter at the time, both at Say Brother and at the Bay State Banner reports that Ray Richardson has been terminated. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ray Richardson was a celebrity in Boston. <laughs> he was the man. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can I can still see his uh, half boots. He, you know, during that time, men were wearing the boots with the high heel, <laughs> and he had a ton of them. <laughs> so, um, and the, and the community. Uh, simply erupted, and Mel King brought leadership. Right. He was the director of the new um, Urban League of Boston. Mm -hmm. Note, I say the new Urban League, not the Urban League. Um, and there was a demonstration of 50 or 60 people at WGBH, and and then there was this mass meeting at the Emma Lewis School of Art, and everybody was at that meeting. And Clarence Dilday, um, who is one, who is one of the most articulate attorneys and fervent civil rights advocate in Boston, Jeff, all I can say to you is, as I remember it, he clowned on the media. <laughs> He simply, I mean, I love Clarence Dilday. He clowned on the media uh, at that meeting. And so then the crowd turned it on WGBH and started calling for the um, uh, the firing 
of the top two people at WGBH, Calderwood and Rice. Right. So the community understood exactly um, what was at stake here. And um, I was a member of the Boston Black United Front at the time. And the Black United Front um, really really said, if you're black and we find you on the cameras of Channel 2, which was <laughs> WGBH, you're going to be called out. And that no black people should take part in any of the station's fundraising. They were getting right to the mm. point. So even with all of that and Say Brother was reinstated, Ray Richardson was never um, to be returned to Say Brother. And I can witness that the spirit of Say Brother was never to be the same. But one of the things that you point out in your article is that uh, within months of Richardson's firing, uh, Don Fuser, a producer uh, in who in 1968 had helped get Say Brothers started and who was now the executive producer of the Nader Report, mm-hmm. the station's major project, was fired as well. Now... This takes us to um, my point about black radical media. Across the country, across the city, across urban areas, the message was you cannot, you must not, and we will not allow you to talk, to speak truth to power on the on the TV machine. Uh-huh. That's why that's one of the reasons why this this story is so important. And it continues to this day. Now, I'm not sure maybe, maybe you can relay the story of how Ray got to Mexico because after he left say brother I'm not very clear about what he did. Right. Um, he 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 continued. Uh, he was still. I mean, it was still being struggled out. Uh, his status and Calderwood winds up resigning. The the head of the station winds up re, uh, resigning soon. And from all the community pressure, the the station has to come out publicly and say they made a mistake in canceling the show. Right. That's how, as you're describing, that's how intense the pressure was. And one thing um, that's mentioned early in the article. At the 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 viewership of the program was one third of the black community, which is a staggering number for any show, uh, and strongly following the show. Right, so I mean that's I don't think any TV show gets that that kind of rating or that percentage. And also half of its listeners came from beyond the black community too, so it had some much broader appeal. I mean it it it, it was significant and I think that's one of the real reasons because of the impact it had that they were just so adamant about not letting uh, Ray come back so after he um, leaves 
he works for a short while training some uh, younger people in film. I mean, he was very talented uh, filmmaker and cameraman and uh, very skilled. And he works uh, at the Harlem Film Cooperative with Roy Campanella's son and um, Vashti also. Now, Vashti, his fiance who dies with him, people should know that she had won an Emmy for doing work on Gil Nobles Like It Is show in New York. I mean, these are extraordinarily yes. talented people, right? And so what happens is um, Ray's father, Virgil, who's a Tuskegee Airman, um, and one of the founders of the American Negro Theater in the 30s, right? Again, they, just coming from this family with uh, skills and talent and discipline. Uh, and when he comes back from World War II, he, there's just a few real white supremacist incidents and confrontations, and he just doesn't want to deal with it anymore, right? And the relationship is a bit strained with uh, his wife, Ray's mom, right? So he decides to go to Mexico to live, and he's, he he goes down there, and he's living now for basically the remainder of his life in Mexico. He's originally from Texas, Texarkana region, and he has family there. And what happened is his father passed away in um I think it was in early December of nineteen seventy. Ray's fired in in August. The uh New Bedford show uh, filming was in July. Ray's fired in August. And um so the father suggests that Ray and Vashti come down to visit. Uh he's also worried the father says in his biography when he hears that Ray was getting close to the Panthers because he, he father had been around a little and he understood that there was a degree of infiltration and he just wanted to make sure you know his son knew what he was doing and who he was working and associating with. So they go down and they spend uh, most of two months with the, with uh, Virgil uh, Richardson Ray's father and uh, they're ready to go when they um, about a week before they leave when they meet this couple from Buffalo New York. Um, their their names were. Uh, Giff, Basil Giff and, and uh, Willie Sharon Giff, although uh, Ray's father remembers the fella as Givens. You know, that's um, perhaps how he was introduced to him. And, you know, he has suspicions right from the start. And when they go, they wind up going to Acapulco, and they go in an area in Acapulco that does have a, um, a rip current. People refer to it as an undertow, but it's really the rip current that pulls people out, right? And um, that's the area where they're swimming, and uh, for whatever reasons, I mean, we don't have much more on these stories. And then there, there are at least three different reports on what bodies are found. Um, the, the real question, Ray's body comes back. Um, uh, Virgil goes to Acapulco as soon as he gets a, a call, although he, he, all the days are even mixed up in, in the reports from the official Mexican authorities, from the press, and from uh, the biography of, you know, which day everybody's notified, who, uh, um, what bodies were found. Ray's body is found, um, and it's, it's also shark-eaten, and, uh, you know, it's tough for his father to look at. Uh, Vashti's, they say, was never found. They say the other body that was found was the gift woman, you know, but, again, a lot of this could perhaps uh-huh. be looked into further, right? Yeah, but one of the interesting part of this is the, mon- the, the, the monitoring. I am absolutely sure that Ray right. Richardson was being monitored by uh, the federal U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the the summer after my first internship with Say Brother, I went to Florida because my parents ordered me to come home because I had been arrested twice in my in my freshman year uh, for protest in, in protests. 
Um, so uh, my punishment was to come home for the summer and not stay in Boston. And a friend and I be- set up a Black Power Education Center in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, we did work with young people, and we published um, in the local black newspaper, and we tried to get the Black Power Movement agenda onto the NAACP, the Urban League, and other community organizations. That's what we did for the summer. And at the toward the end of the summer, um, the... West Palm Beach Police Department had just been integrated. There was a segregated police department, and the black sheriff approached my father to let my father know that I was being monitored and our phones were being tapped by the FBI. Mm -hmm. And to tell the truth, Jeff, um, over the phone, I was, you know, I really was talking smack uh, about these white people and, and you know, and the black people going to take over. I mean, I was 17 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking a lot of smack. And um, my form of dress was I had started wearing African dress and a gaily. So that made me a Muslim and a, and a black power uh, terrorist in the whole nine yards. So it was not surprising to me when Charles Richardson pointed point as Charles Richardson points yeah. out that because WGBH was the flagship of the PBS network exactly. that Tate exactly. Brother was being heavily uh monitored and Ray Richardson was a target of that mm-hmm. monitoring. Now let's talk about um how the PBS network um were run out of the paranoid Nixon White House. Tell that story. Well, this is what what Charles said he uh, indicated he got from Ray, and I I have some of it in because I only wanted to go with what I could at least get some corroboration for in a short time when I was putting the the piece together. But he, he said they were under the impression that in the basement of the White House, you know, an office had been set up, which was kind of originally the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting is set up under Johnson in 67, Lyndon Johnson. Um, and it's, it's set up in the basement of the White House by a fellow who's, as I recall, has got ties to the CIA. Um, it's been documented in some other books on the history of um, public television. But um, – uh, then when Nixon comes in, Nixon, as we know and as we have learned, is extremely paranoid, as is his head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, these are some characters. And um, in the White House, uh, they uh, Ray was under the impression that they were you know, keeping a very careful eye on public broadcasting and that show in particular, Say Brother. And Charles writes, uh, as you were indicating, that – uh the the show was having such an impact um 
he goes, it was in a position to monitor the goings-on. It was still dealing with post-assassination riots and recovery as well as Vietnam. It is not surprising that they would view Say Brother as dangerous to the status quo, right? And I think that's how the Nixon administrated viewed it um charles talks about and we we i have you know i describe it in the article with charles how he his mother as i mentioned earlier and ray were all being monitored um and it had happened in their family previously too going back to the grandfather so uh-huh. they they had a little idea of what they were dealing with you know uh-huh and 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 you uh charles richardson adds in the article that when Ray died, the Nation of Islam, through the editor yes. of their weekly newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, offered to have their Fruit of Islam, their paramilitary-style security mm-hmm. force, provide security for the funeral. And right. and underscoring that those were serious times and only the people who were living it, like we were understood exactly. what he was dealing with. I mean... Uh, one of the ways in which uh, you know that you are doing what you should be doing is that when you have to consider these kinds of things. Uh, it was not when I first started broadcasting Brave, Bold, and Black in South Florida. It was not um, um, uh unusual for me to come home and find dead pigeons in my driveway or to get phone calls asking if I knew my daughter also did a Saturday morning show on the radio show where I was doing four hours Monday through Friday uh, to ask me if I knew where my daughter was. Uh, It was not unusual um, for those kinds of things, for threatening phone calls coming into my home uh, for threats coming into the radio station, and I am always grateful to the Nation of Islam that provided security for me uh, when I uh, did public, large public appearance, appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the troubling times have not ended, but during this time, it was particularly particularly troubling, and don't forget, for those of you who are listening to this discussion, it was J. Edgar Hoover who was the director of the FBI at the time that Say Brother was broadcasting. Mm. And it speaks to, Jeff, it really does speak to today's media. We have to be very, very careful uh, about how we listen. I was having a discussion with India Declare of the I Declare show uh, just on Friday about the notion of why in much of the broadcasting that we see as black-focused broadcasting, we we are hearing such uh, soft touches and people are talking about grave issues, but they are smiling and uh, and, and it kind of like gets on your nerves sometimes, <laughs> it's, it's essentially for that. But I, I, I want to close out by saying to you out there, this is an important story. Ray Richardson was an important player in black American media and American media because he 
able to carve through the mountains to the possibility of what it could mean for us in our liberation struggle to hear our stories told from our perspectives. And he set the standard. And I am just so pleased, Jeff, to be able to have you uh, on our airwaves to talk about this and so grateful uh, that as a journalist uh, and a writer that you're doing the work of a genuine, authentic ally. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Janice, and I'm I'm glad that it's in your hands. <laughs> You're doing a wonderful job getting the word out and information. This is it's been well, a I'm total gonna be pleasure. Doing some, I'm so thankful. Some, yeah. People can go to the Our Common Ground uh, website, which is located at ourcommongroundtalk.wordpress.com, because the other one and we don't have any volunteers to do. We have like five work uh, uh, web sites. Um, Jeff, <laughs> right, and, and I try so hard. Um, um, I, I'm sure that the federal government doesn't realize that they shut down, so I could clean up some of my websites. <laughs> but before we close, one of the things that I do want to say is that um, Elma Lewis, who was 49 years old at the time, I always saw Elma Lewis as being 65. Uh, You're 17, right? (laughs) Yes. And she said about, in her tribute to Ray Richardson, she said, and you you present this in, in your piece, she said about him, I remember a young man much too serious for his years, much too sensitive to bear the inequities of being black in this society much too honest to be comfortable with the necessity for adjusting to the games that people play. But these are fine qualities in a fine young man. The phrase much too should be inappropriate. However, this society doesn't reward fine qualities in its young men. They must walk cautiously, and young black men must tiptoe. Ray was a very intelligent, imaginative young man who showed the gentle bearing of one whose special nature had been carefully nurtured. It was clear that here was not just a sh- that he was not just a charlatan looking for sudden fame and success, but he was a strong young man with a fine intellect for its chosen profession. A television producer at 23, he showed more balance than men who have arrived at that point 10 years later. And believe me, Jeff, Elma Lewis loved Ray Richards. She would fuss at him from here to there, but she loved him. And we were all so very proud to have been the friend of this gentleman. And he was a gentle, fine, sensible, brilliant man. And thank you, Jeff Perry, for writing that part of his story that we have chosen, that so many have chosen to walk away from. 
Thank you, Janice, so very, very much. Really appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back on Our Common Ground. Um, When's that going to be? Hopefully we do that soon. Right, because I'm going to be doing three talks in Boston. Let me just mention, I'll be speaking in Boston on the 19th and the 20th, 19th at the Roxbury, at the Dudley Public Library in Roxbury, and on the 20th at the Community Church of Boston, and then in Cambridge also on the 20th. And I'm going to be talking on Hubert Harrison and Theodore W. Allen, and we'll probably get into a little discussion of Ray Richardson. And if I may, I just want to mention the webpage for people who are interested, particularly to learn about Ray's grandfather, www.jeffreybperry.net Well, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, thing to have an ally like you, and I look forward to seeing you um, next week. On Saturday, yes. Okay, great, and thank you again so very, very much. Thank you, Jeff, and thank all of you that uh, stayed with us to talk about this very, very important um, piece of history in black media, because we haven't been the same. The the article is the radicalization of Ray Richardson. Suspicion still surrounds death of black activist producer. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back. Flying high, you know how I feel Sun in the sky, you know how I feel Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day New life for me. And I'm feeling good.
for you.
not sure if we are lying down and taking it as though we are dead and we're just just we have become a a nation of we're just acquiescing a whole nation of people acquiescing to whatever comes down the pike and i am very afraid and we're going to talk about it this week on Soul of Fire and the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network, and we're going to talk about it here. I am just really afraid that the plan is to make us a nation that is numb on our personal tragedy, our personal sorrow and fear. So whatever happens after this is damn sure better than what we got. And that is going to be the foundation from which this Congress will negotiate a federal budget. They will target, we know that they will target Medicare. We know that they will target Social Security. But what we are not focusing on is how they will target the empowerment of the corporate capitalist power structure to dictate public policy. We're not focusing on housing and how the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department, the USDA, all of their budgets over the last four years have been slashed. We're not focusing on that because, folks, in my estimation, in my esteemed opinion, that's where they're headed. That has been the point all along. We, we're, we're, we're doing so much focusing on, oh, these people are crazy, they're pathological. They're not pathological. They're just smarter than the Democrats. They're more bold than, than the Democrats. And they're more determined than the Democrats. The number is 347-838-9852. You better call in if you want to get in on the Our Common Ground Blast Lounge after the show kind of thing. 347-838-9852. I want to thank Dr. Jeffrey Perry. He is so brilliant. He is such a... uh, an ally. He is just so incisive in his understanding. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you next week.
rush into battle. We're soldiers. We get hurt in the fight. We suck it up and we hold it down and we don't question. I like it or not. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? You've been listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm Janice Graham. If it's Saturday at 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. Next Saturday, join us with Wendell Potter. We'll be talking with Wendell as he returns about his new book and about the Affordable Health Care Act. Do us a favor and yourself as well. Tell your friends about this broadcast. And join us on TruthWorks Network, Wednesdays and Fridays with Soul of Fire and The Alpha Show. You can find Our Common Ground on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Pinterest, and Twitter at JaniceOCG. Thanks again, and don't forget, I'll be listening for you. And because we owe it to our ancestors, we stand, we tell the truth, we deal with our truth based on we, the children of Shaka Zulu, we are gladiators. Winter in America.
Ah! Uh-huh. 